Welcome to the Art Within podcast, hosted by filmmakers Houston Coley and Nate Shepard. This is season one, cultivating community in the digital era. Hey guys, welcome to the third episode of the Art Within podcast. We're back again to talk about more things. I don't know how to do these intros, but I am glad to be here again. I was thinking this week about how I think with each episode of the show so far, we're kind of like just introducing seemingly disconnected themes. Just like, mm. let's talk about Inklings and Imagineers. And let's talk, let's talk about place and church buildings. And now it's like, let's talk about, I think we're going to talk about movie theaters and art installation. And I really appreciate that variety. But I also think that I feel like, especially in this first season, we're kind of laying the building blocks for like conceptual mm. framework for like the things that we think about with this podcast and, and the things that might kind of link together in the future that we'll kind of circle back to. So I've kind of enjoyed doing that, even if it might seem unrelated mm. at the start. Hi, Nate, by the way. Hello. Hi. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's been fun. Again, yeah, it does feel a little scattered and all over the place. And some of that is kind of the fun of it. And you're like, I don't know, why are we talking about it? Because we're both interested in it. Yeah. But also, I think, you know, we both live in very much the space of valuing the cultivation of community while also being digital nomads who are you know building our career as independent filmmakers and media producers and all that stuff and so we're again the theme of this season is uh cultivating community in the digital age so we're living in the digital age we're both very right. active in digital spaces while also having a really core value of building community and so despite it being a little hodgepodge and random uh, as far as the seemingly the topics here, I think it, that core is definitely a through line of not just talking about building community, but looking at it from sort of the modern era of technology and media and things like that, which actually gets us right into our topic, I think, mm, because... Um, good transition. I know, transitions. I'm good at that, right? <laughs> but yeah, we both you and I are... are really interested in this topic. So I think it'll be a really fun conversation, but just talking about temporary art, um, art experiences or, you know, things that are designed to not last and why that might actually be one of the most essential things for us right now. And in particular, a couple of the topics that I think we'll be exploring is, I know Houston, you've got some really great ideas and you've written a blog post and made a video on the topic of movie theaters and sort of the sacredness of movie theaters. Yeah. Um, and then I also have a, a, a fair amount of experience doing installation art, which I'll explain a little bit what that is later, um, but also have some other uh, experiments I've done as an artist in, in sort of that world of deliberately designing things to not live forever on the internet and seeing how that actually changes or impacts those who are engaging with that art and maybe even rehumanizes aspects of the experience. Um, but I, I'd love to start from just kind of, you've, you've already got like some really well thought out and formulated ideas around uh, the sacredness of the movie theater. So I feel like we could start there of just, and I think it's a great, you know, universal idea and universal experience that people can latch on to that hopefully will be a, a sort of front door for us in getting into this topic a little bit. So mm -hmm. I don't know, well, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? And what yeah. do you have to say? For, what, what wisdom do you have to share here? Well, and I also want to share a bit of the questions that we, or, or answers to the discussion question this week um, that I oh, put yeah, out yeah, yeah. on Twitter, which, which ties into that movie theater thing a lot. I asked on Twitter, What's the most profound in the moment experience you've had with art that could only truly be experienced once, like a theater play or a concert? Have you ever performed or created something artistic that was only meant to be temporary? And I got so many responses. It's I think this was like the biggest question so far. And maybe part of that is because you could just say a movie experience that you've had. And so a lot of the the replies were my friends and people kind of in those circles on Twitter replying with some of their most memorable theatrical experiences, the kind that couldn't be replicated, like seeing Return of the King on opening night, seeing Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows on opening night. Some of them, this, this happened in New York this week, and I am so jealous. A few friends of mine have been to the live showing of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse with a live orchestra in New York mm. City. And so you're <laughs> watching the movie with a live orchestra, and I'm just like so jealous of that. So a few people mentioned that. So there was a lot of sort of concert stuff you know, memorable experiences of seeing an artist perform live in a way that could not be replicated again. 
There was also meaningful movie theater experiences. And then there were a few other things that stuck with me. <laughs> One of them was a, a school project. A guy named Space Cowboy said, not sure if I should tag him, but my friend and former classmate went, went unnecessarily hard for one of our school projects and did some insane live performance art. <laughs> and I said, I want to hear more about this in all caps. And he said, unfortunately, don't have any photo or video, but, but it was basically a very Eric Andre inspired bit. The main skit was an interview going very, very wrong, devolving into murder and stuff. The most <laughs> impressive part was when he synced and timed his entire performance to a pre-recorded video in the classroom. <laughs> Nice. So that's the kind of, th I love to hear that kind of stuff. I, I, I love when a school or a school project uh, just goes insanely extra <laughs> for no reason. And then one of my friends, Austin Nebia, who is a patron of mine, he mentioned something that I've just been hearing about from a few other people, which is this experience in New York City called Sleep No More. I don't know if you've heard about this. Mm -mm. It's like an interactive theater play, like, like, almost escape room but you're not trying to escape it's just like a, a theater play that you walk into like it's a, a massive warehouse and there's like all these different vignettes going on with like actors and stuff and it's never the same and you kind of just get to walk around and pick up on conversations that's happening in these fictional vignettes and sort of piece the story together over the course of the night even though it won't be the same the next night so a, a lot of people mm. are like huge fans of sleep no more and they like go you know repeated times to like gain new you know experiences with it and that sort of wow. thing so that was interesting mm. to hear so i think that might even play a bit into your stuff with installation art yeah i mean all that stuff lines up a lot with what i do with installation art which again yeah. we'll get to that in a little bit here but yeah well and so movie theater stuff i guess i should, I should talk about it if, if you want sort of a longer take on movie theaters from me I, I just put out a video about it it's called the multiverse and the sacred Ritual of Cinema, I think, something like that. <laughs> I changed the title like 10 times because it was so niche and weird and obscure. But <laughs> I am a massive fan of the theatrical experience. And I think the reason that I've, I've become such a dedicated patron of it is that I think that the theatrical experience is one of the only things about a movie experience that cannot be replaced or repeated again. I, I think mm. it's something that is so temporary. And I think because of that kind of transcendent, because, you know, being there on opening night of a movie and seeing it with a room of people who have never seen it before is something that you're not going to be able to experience again. And it's part mm -hmm. of why, like, Debbie, when we got married, was kind of like, she didn't grow up going to the movie theater nearly as much as I did. And she was like, why do you care about seeing new movies, you know, so, like, close to when they came out? And I'm like, because I'm only going to get to see it in theaters this once, you know, unless they do some re-release 10 years from now or something, and that won't be the same thing. And I, you know, I really care about getting to have that experience and not regretting that I missed out on it. You know? But I think it's more than that. Also, I think it's the thing that I really love about movie theaters is how communal they are. I think it's a, it's a rare, and this is what I talk about in the video, a rare kind of sacred space where we all get to give our direct attention to something and be present with it in the moment. And because of that, we kind of get to share the same reality for two hours. Like, like we get to sit in the same room, stare at the same thing, we all give up control over the movie screen. So we kind of humble ourselves into almost this this like act of worship. Like we're just like, I, I, I don't want to get too pagan with it, like bow down <laughs> to the screen. But I think it is something of like giving up your pride and control and ego, giving up the ability to pause it and go to the bathroom, giving mm. up the ability to fast forward and just being present with a movie screen that is much bigger than you with a big room of people who are all having the exact same experience as you, I think it's kind of a sacred ritual that allows us to exist in the same reality with other people again. Mm -hmm. And a key part of it is also that transientness, is the fact that it's it's not going to last forever, is the fact that it's a temporary experience that can't be repeated again. And so that's why you don't want to go to the bathroom mid-movie, because you want to make sure that you've seen, you know, gotten to stick around and see it and not missed anything. And, and so I think... That stands in stark contrast to kind of the way that we experience a lot of media now with YouTube videos and streaming services and all this kind of stuff where we can just skip around whenever we want. And now Netflix even has the option to watch movies at 1.5 speed. And like, not only is that very much 
against kind of what the artist's vision would be, I think, like Mm. experiencing it the way that the artist intended it to be experienced and kind of giving them respect in that way, which I think is so necessary. I think we should respect what an artist wanted their art to be presented as and not just like watch it on our own terms at 1.5 speed. But it also kind of turns it into like a a consumer product in some way. Like it's just a thing that I can box up and put on my shelf and just like skip through whenever I want, you know. And that's not to say, like, to be fair, I am looking forward to watching Avatar The Way of Water on a loop and going back to all the times that I, like, all the little favorite scenes that I have from it, you know, when it's at home on digital HD or whatever. Like, I'm looking forward to being able to go back and watch a few scenes and all that kind of stuff. But I also saw it nine times in the theater. <laughs> and so I, I I have had my fill of, like, being able to kind of just be present and know that, like, this experience is not going to last forever and see it the way that, like... Like seeing Avatar again at home will not be the same as having seen it in a theater because it's just, it's not the same thing. 3D, you can't have at home unless you buy one of those crazy 3D TVs that I don't even think they sell anymore. So yeah, that's all to say, I think that the theatrical experience is something really sacred and maybe part of it is just that I have ADHD and it helps me to like be Mm. present in the moment and kind of give my full attention to something. But it's also something that feels incredibly communal and transcendent to me because of that. Mm. So that's just a little little brief overview of my thoughts on, on movie theaters. Yeah, and I think there's also this aspect of uh, certainly the movie theater experience is worth it when, when the film is designed for that space. Now, not all movie theaters are optimized as much as they could be, but I think there's still that principle of you're being, mm. you're able to experience it with the, as, as close to the fullest quality as it was designed to be experienced. And that's not just about honoring the artist's vision, um, but it's just, it's a better experience when you, it, when you engage with it as it was intended to be experienced. Uh, you know, a lot of people have put a lot of effort and time into uh, designing this experience to be immersive in a way mm. that, you can capture aspects of it if you have a decent home theater system, but I think the combo of both the just technical, very carefully curated design of the media itself, while also experiencing that with a room full of people who mm. laugh at certain parts and gasp at certain parts, and all of that together, I think, does create this kind of transcendent and unique, not replicatable uh, mm. experience. And I know I feel like we've talked about this before too, of like. You go and see, you know, if you see a movie multiple times, the same movie, different audiences react differently, yeah, which is yeah. really interesting. Um, I actually, my, more my practical experience with this dynamic is uh, actually in preaching. Um, and hmm. at risk of being moderately controversial, I do think preaching is a type of performance art. Hmm. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean that in in, in, in sort of a, a negative way, where there, there's just this reality of you're getting up and you are uh, expressing ideas in a compelling and winsome way. That's quote unquote good preaching. Yeah. And what happens as I've had experiences preaching is there's this like, you can feel the movement of the audience. And there's almost this sense of like you are, again, I don't mean this in a bad way at all. You're playing the audience like an instrument. Like there's this sort of give and take. And I think movies are the same way as, as, again, it's not a deliberate manipulation or like you're playing the audience in like a negative sense. Um, A lot of it's subconscious. A lot of it is just the reality of humans being in a room together and how we play off of each other and, um, you know, certainly like I, uh, another good example would be, um, going to see movies, uh, with kids. I remember seeing, I won't name the movie cause it was not, I, I did not find it to be a, a particularly well-crafted <laughs> movie, but I went to see uh, a movie with, uh, two of my kids over Christmas break. It was just like a kid's movie with, an, you know, animated animals. And hearing them laugh. It's not Puss in Boots. We need to make that. It's not Puss in Boots. To be clear, (laughs) Puss in Boots was incredible. And it was a great movie. And I have no no notes. It was amazing. No, but it was just, it was interesting to be able to experience a somewhat mediocre movie, but with children who are invested, who are riveted, who are laughing at certain parts and whatever, you know, where it actually makes it a more enjoyable experience for me. Yeah. Because now now I'm genuinely laughing and I'm like, that is pretty silly. And I just forgot how silly things can be um, when you're watching it through the eyes of a six-year-old or a three-year-old. Yeah. And so I think there's something beautiful about experiencing things in community in that way because it actually can change your relationship to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much more I feel like I could say about that. And I don't know if yeah. you have more thoughts before because I, I do like... want to talk a little bit more about installation art specifically. But Yeah. It's interesting that... 
I've noticed sort of an air of dismissiveness among some people like, well, if the movie's good, it'll be just as good at home. You know, mm. if it'll it'll be just as good. It should be, you know, if it's a, if it's a good movie, it doesn't need a theater to be experienced. Mm. And I feel like that's like saying if it's a good Broadway show, it should be just as good on the recording that PBS did that I'm watching on my TV. <laughs> like, no, like. A Broadway show is meant to be experienced on the stage. <laughs> like, And some, many directors make their movies to be experienced in a theater. I know that I'm hoping to do that with the movies that I make. Now, granted, I do hope that those movies are good experiences if you watch them at home. But I also hope that there is something irreplaceable about seeing mm. it in community with other people. And like, even as we, we are constructing the Labrie documentary, like, I, it's something that I want to make with in my head the idea of community like i want this to be experienced in community and something that will provoke discussion and thought and and emotion among a group of people rather than an individual mm. experience i think the most communal theater experience that i've ever had happened two weeks ago <laughs> it was at the belcourt theater in nashville and we went to go see the re-release of rrr and it was just a packed room in a historic theater built in 1925 it felt like most of the people in the theater had not seen the movie. And so you could just feel the organic reactions of like, and sort of the journey that the audience went on together of like mm. the first 20 minutes or so, it felt like everyone was kind of laughing at the movie. Like it was like, this is so crazy and silly. This, you know, Indian cinema is so weird. And then like after the 20 minute mark, it was like everyone was laughing with the movie. Like all the jokes mm. were just hitting perfectly and people were like, wait, I really like these characters and I'm like invested in this story. And then by the intermission, everyone was just cheering for the movie. And you felt this like intense journey that the group of people went on together and like shock of like when the most insane action would happen and just like gasps and sort of like, what? That's crazy. But also really really strong emotion and and investment that just was palpable in the room and i think that's something that cannot be replaced at home and something that like i'm gonna treasure that experience forever i still mm. like looking back on it that movie is not playing in the theater anymore it probably won't again for a long time and i just feel like an intense melancholy about it like it's like mm. i am so glad that i got to be there that night because it's mm. like i i treasure that experience really dearly and I know it's not going to happen again for a very long time. So it's mm. there's something really beautiful, and, and I think it sticks with you more because mm. it was temporary and be because it was so transient. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk about sort of the the art installation stuff that you do and some of these other transient yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, before we jump into that aspect, I, I just wanted to reflect briefly on the, you know, I think I found it interesting you said melancholy mm. after the experience was done. And I think that that there's this, so temporary art, again, it's this idea that the art is designed to only be experienced in this moment and not necessarily live on. And that I think in our modern mind, certainly in the age of the internet, that's like a really foreign and confusing concept for a lot of us. At first you're like, why would you want that? Why would that be mm. valuable? That seems like an unfortunate, like everything should be designed, to, you know, because we can. We can capture everything, so we should. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways that we could explore that and sort of unpack uh, what that is, why that is. Um, but I think one aspect of it is that we're afraid of things ending. Where where there is this like almost need for uh, at risk of being a little too philosophical about it, I think there's a need to be immortal. Hmm. That we all have this like crushing fear of death. That once you get to a certain age and you start to wrestle with the reality of existence, you're like, at some point, this ends. All of it, all of it ends. I don't. I, there's no escaping that part of reality, except I can pretend that it doesn't for a while. And so a lot of the ways that we engage with media and even the world around us is almost in like fear of death to avoid mm. thinking this might be more of a, you know, an, an American sort of uh, mentality. I, I don't know how prevalent it is necessarily around the world, but certainly within our country here, there is a lot of just... We are so death averse. We are so like, let's keep death at, at, at the furthest length that we can. And actually, uh, Puss in Boots is a great film of exploring <laughs> that, uh, learning how to make peace with death, uh, which is just beautiful. I know it's a kid's movie and you're like, what, what a great theme. <laughs> but uh, I think it's such a valuable thing. And this is part of what I love about temporary art is that yeah. it, 
it on some level it forces you to re-engage with this reality that's not going anywhere mm. and the fear of it is actually crippling you from being fully yourself fully healthy fully human and so you may as well learn how to embrace it may as well learn how to lean into the reality of death and the reality of loss and things ending because it's going to happen either way anyway mm. um, but there's actually something really beautiful when you like sit with the melancholy when you allow yourself to lose and to sort of sit in the memory of something um, and there's actually a pretty great article that a friend of mine posted it was on a website called on stage blog uh, an article by somebody named Lindsay Timmington um, that was just talking about the experience of of stage plays and how uh, her experience with them is that they end mm. And there's this whole like uh, almost like deep anxiety about the fact that these things end because they're such intense and and incredible experiences for the people on the stage to be a part of. And so I just want to quote a few things from the article because I think it fits really well with what you were just talking about. So Lindsay says this, part of what makes theater so beautiful is the sheer presence of it. As an audience, as an actor, on any given day, you sign a sacred contract with the understanding that what's to transpire for the next few hours has never happened before, and when it's over, will never happen again. Mm. Sure, it's the same script, the same song and dance, but it's never the same. With the variability of a new audience, a new day, and a new present moment dictating how it is to be, what mm. you see one day will, will never be born again. It will die with the rising of the house lights. Mm. And she goes on to say, and that's what makes the end, the closing of any given show, so difficult, so full of mourning and grief. Because in every sense of it, the theatrical performance has to die. It's not meant to be captured or kept or held onto. It's meant to be enjoyed in the very minute it lives. Like you must know sadness to know happiness, to have the insanely exhilarating feeling of living in the moments of a show, you must live with letting it go. Mm. Just such a beautiful so articulation of that. And so so that's where I kind of want to transition a little bit and just talk about um, my experience uh, of creating installation art. And actually a lot of what got me into it is uh, my love of film. And I love, you know, that the what what film allows us to do as storytellers. But there is something static about it. There's something fundamentally static where the film itself to mm. some degree doesn't change. It doesn't, you know, evolve. Um, well, and I think, I think as filmmakers in particularly, like there's al almost m more so than maybe other artistic mediums. Sometimes you and I as filmmakers may have a proclivity or a desire for kind of capturing and immortalizing everything. Like I know mm -hmm. that's part of what I sort of gravitate towards with film is like, I just kind of want to make things last forever and I, I do kind of sometimes want to be able to hold that thing in my hand, you know, like even mm. with the Labrie documentary, there's a level at which I've had such profound experiences at that place. And so I want to make a film about it so I can kind of hold those experiences in my hand and be like, this is, this film captures what those experiences were and nothing is ever going to capture what those experiences were totally, you know? And mm. so, yeah, it is like a, a strange give and take. And that is almost where I've sort of, I, I would like to give myself over more to like creating things that are meant to be experienced in a theater or something like that, because it does force me to wrestle with that sort of temporal nature of something that I think, yeah, film, film is sort of something that inherently even more than other things sort of makes us want to sort of immortalize mm. things and capture them forever when that's not always possible. But hmm. yeah, no, and I, I think that some of it is again, we're not necessarily saying that it's it's always bad to immortalize things. That's <laughs> not remotely what we're saying. Yeah. But it is realizing that we are we're perhaps as a culture unhealthfully obsessed with immortalization, with needing to live on forever, with you know I'm not saying you're doing this necessarily, but it's like I think a, a lot of us for the tendency is to say if I don't last beyond myself, if I don't build some kind of legacy, then did I exist? And now that we can all technically, ha you know, have viral fame and technically become celebrities, um, though very few of us will actually do so, I think there's the, it changes our relationship to things. And so then everything becomes a, an optimization game, even if we're not a, a conscious of it, there's this like, we have to make, you know, we have to make something go viral, or we measure things based on views and all that kind of stuff and mm. and that I think I struggle with that but also I resist that a lot a lot of my personality is uh kind of functions against that and that's part of what got me into installation art 
and uh, some some other things that I, I've started to do was just to, I'm trying to recapture and like take a step back from that um, obsession. Uh, again, there's still things that I do that I want to live on that I you know put up permanently that you know are designed in those ways. But there's also a number of artistic things that I do that are designed for my sake, but also for the sake of the audience to allow us to experience something that isn't possible. Uh, unless there's something temporal, there's something mm-hmm. that can't live on. Yeah. And again, I think some of it is that it forces you to 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 face some of your fears. Um, I, I want to explain a little bit of what I mean by installation art, and then uh, there was actually a friend of mine who who expressed some interesting thoughts regarding a piece that I did. But basically, installation art, as I understand it, it's something that I didn't really know what it was until a couple of years ago, and then I just sort of happened to fall into it based on some encouragement of some local arts friends, and then it's just stuff that I thought was really interesting. Is it it it's a art install like it's just literally a f- uh, usually a three dimensional something, so it's not necessarily something that's on a wall or just a film or you know music but it's got some three-dimensional element to it so mm. i've seen things from like uh there was one artist who did uh the fu- the whole room was filled with this very strange abstract sculpture that was made out of uh construction materials or another artist did like this big black light installation where the entire room was uh papered with like black paper so it was really mm. dark and then a bunch of gl- glowing elements were all around the room and it was all recycled material and it was very uh it was super interesting um and so installation art is just a really broad term to just kind of kind of encompass um art exhibits or art uh, experiences that don't fit into quite the traditional concepts of what art uh typically is and so for me personally, what that what that ended up being is it actually was born out of my love of Disney parks and Disney rides, um, where if you've ever been to Disney and- Music you know, to my ears. Li- I know. <laughs> if you listen to this podcast for long, you will learn that Houston and I love uh, three <laughs> things. We love movies, we love Labrie, and we love Disney uh, Disney World theme parks. Um, <laughs> And, and and nothing else. No, I'm just yeah, no more things than that. No more things than that. But yeah, I, I distinctly remember uh, as a kid going on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in uh, in at uh, is that at Magic Kingdom in yeah. uh, in Florida. And there's this particular moment. You're in this like water craft. It's sort of like a log flume, whatever. You know, you're sitting in this thing that's floating down kind of a lazy river with a bunch of pre-built scenes and they use animatronic robots to be the pirates. And so there's all these moving dynamic scenes and it's not a thrill ride in the traditional sense of G-force, you know, loops and throwing you around the room. Um, It's more about being immersed in an imaginary uh, reality. And I remember going into this one room in particular where you kind of go down a slope and then it kind of quote unquote opens up. So Mm -hmm. there's this, you you suddenly have this feeling as though you are out at sea in the middle of the night, and there's this large city or structure of some kind on a, on a cliff. And your brain is like, I know I'm not actually at sea, but they did such a good job of force perspective and just designing the room. And there's like this extra breeze that comes and there's all this like just sensory experience that you're like, but I'm, I might be out at sea. I don't know what's going on here, but I feel like I'm actually out on the open water. And then water. you are subsequently drenched with the splash of a cannonball. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember that part so much. Maybe I, maybe I was sitting on the wrong side, but uh, but it was just that to me it captured my imagination of transforming a small space into feeling like a larger space. And so for years I kind of was like obsessed with that idea. And then long long story short, finally got into designing something akin to that. And what I do is I try to use multimedia you know, projections and surround sound. Um, I've done stuff with like where I'll bring in fake, you know, like I'll bring in Christmas trees to be pine trees. So I'll make it feel like the room Mm -hmm. is a small forest and hide speakers in each of the trees and then put little sound effects of different types of birds chirping in the Mm -hmm. trees. And then there's a projection against one wall that has some type of nature scene or one I did recently was actually exploring the nature of, uh, or, or the relationship between nature and technology. And so it was nature scenes then that were also paired with like technological elements. Like I had two old TVs sitting in the room that would display different quotes based on, you know, the subject material. And it was just like a hodgepodge of ideas and, and sort of a way of exploring a complex theme. And part of what I like about that um, approach is that I wasn't offering a solution or there wasn't a thesis statement. It was just a 
sort of multi-sensory experience of a complex topic that w people who reflected on it were like, that was like a really helpful way to think about something because it gives you the space beyond just like the words or the mental you know processes, but just even the multi-sensory, like you're, the room is quiet, it's cultivated, there's music, there's sound effects that that kind of support your exploration of that. And I know there was another one that I did where uh, I, I had composed this piece that was very much inspired by the soundtrack of Stranger Things. And so it was this really synthy 80s thing. And then I paired it with a cover of a Sufjan Stevens song, Mystery of Love, and just kind of did this whole, again, lights and projection. And, and, then, I, and then I was the live performer in the, in the center of the room. And uh, I did it for like a, a local uh, art open mic night thing. And, and a friend of mine was in the audience for that. And she made the comment after the fact that it, it, being a part of that experience allowed her to, to process some dark emotions that she wasn't comfortable or ready to process until that point. So there was something about the space kind of holding, like it was almost like holding space for her to be okay with entering into some of those and processing some things that outside of that context would have been very scary or disorienting. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like a facilitation of growth and learning that um, at least the, my approach to installation art can facilitate. And so all of that to say, uh, what I love about so much of that is, again, there's a, there is a film element, there's a sort of pre-built element to what I do, but I'm always looking for ways to make a dynamic element as well, to almost like a Disney ride, bring the movie into three dimensions and, and introduce some dynamic aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So sort of heightening that sense of we are in this moment together. I can't believe that we're experiencing this together. For me, again, it was like, I love the concept of Disney rides or, you know, I've been to these, these concerts of this touring musician who just does an amazing job with the lights and the show and the whatever, but usually you have to pay so much money <laughs> uh, to be able to experience that for yourself. And for me, some of that was, I want to be able to offer that experience for people without charging such a big um, price tag or, or requiring you to travel so far. And so I just do it in living rooms and do it in art local the local art house um, in part as a way of saying, hey, I want to bring this large scale feeling experience into a small space because I see how valuable that these dynamic and larger than life experiences can be. And I recognize that not everybody gets the opportunity to experience these things. And so just, anyway, that's a long winded way of kind of exploring the the topic of installation art but again i think there's this interesting aspect of yeah the transient nature of it the the here and now it like forces you to be present and in many ways when you allow that to happen then you actually grow you actually are like able to process complex things that you weren't able to before and again i think movies do this and when you're fully surrounded by the movie you're almost forced then to engage with it emotionally in a way that if you're streaming it, you might be tempted to, you know, or, or be able to be easily distracted or on your phone or whatever. And, and when yeah. the lights are dim and the sound is all around you, you can't really take a phone call. I mean, you can, but nobody is going to like you and you'll probably be kicked out of the theater. It's like it forces you to face this story and the story can do so much good work in uh, processing your own inner demons or helping you gain empathy for a different perspective or a different worldview or whatever. It, it does so much for us that we don't even realize it's doing. Um, and that's part of the, particularly the beauty of film. Um, but all art forms, I think, have this capacity, if we'll let it, uh, to to bring us to new places and to transform us in a way that a lecture or even a podcast like this is not going to accomplish because there's yeah. not this deeper emotional connection. It's just ideas. But when you are able to enter into that fully immersed space that is also like here and now, not something that you can go and rewatch in the same way, uh, it can be a really beautiful and transformative thing. Mm -hmm. I think about Disney World and the way that obviously we have a shared love of, of Disney World and and I'm not even a, a huge lover of rides at Disney. I mean, I love I, I love rides, but I. The main reason that I love Disney is sort of the atmospheric element of it and the architectural element and sort of the spatial storytelling and stuff. But but I do think about the way that the experience of going on a ride at Disney World is, in a sense, a a ritual. Like it it starts with almost like a pilgrimage. Like you you have made your way to Disney World to begin with, which might be quite a far journey for you. But then also 
you've waited in a long line for this ride. And so you're sort of like, as you're waiting in this line, almost like readying your heart to experience something <laughs> transcendent, you know, that's probably not how like the vast majority of people think about it. They're like, oh, I hate this line. But I think you are sort of getting into a frame of mind where like you're, you're, you're preparing yourself to be present. And then, you know, I mean, we talk about the way that, that rides at theme parks are always so short, but I think that the shortness of the experience is also part of what makes you like want to be present during that. Like, you know, I think about flight of passage at, at, uh, the avatar themed, man, there's a lot of avatar in this episode, but the, the avatar uh, themed land at animal kingdom at Disney world, Flight of Passage is an amazing ride. It's sort of an immersive, like you're riding on a banshee in Pandora. But it's also, every time I've ridden it with my family, it's been like a really significant, like bonding experience for us. And I always think about just the fact that we've we've waited so long and then you sit down on that, like what they call it, the link chair that then becomes the banshee that you're riding on. And you're like ready to be present in that moment and kind of experience whatever comes at you for the next whatever it is, four minutes. And so it's a short-lived thing. And when it ends, it's over. And if you want to do it again, you have to wait another like two hours to get on it, you know. But because of that, there's almost a, a sort of a magic to it. And even in a broader sense, like when you go to Disney World, you're only there for a short time. You can't live there forever. You have to leave at some point. And so like the the finite nature of your vacation almost makes you want to be present with your family and be present together in, in this week because you know that the week is not going to last forever. I think about the um, – I, I like this story and almost have, have interpreted it in different ways in my life, but the the story of the transfiguration in, in the Gospels where John and James and Peter and Jesus all go up to the top of the mountain and Jesus does the transfiguration. He's, he's up there on the mountain, he's standing there, and all of a sudden Elijah and Moses are standing next to him. And the first thing that Peter says is, Master, can we build tents here and stay? Hmm. <laughs> he's like, I'll build a tent for you and a tent for Elijah and a tent for Moses. Let's just stay here. you know. And Jesus says something like, what? <laughs> He's like, what, what are you talking about? Let's just be present in this moment, you know? Mm. And I, I think, I always think about that as sort of an example of like, you know, this this transcendent mountaintop experience is happening and all Peter wants to do is stay up on the mountain forever and be able to make tents so, so Elijah and Moses and Jesus can all live there and they can hang out. But like, if you think about that for more than 10 seconds, you're like, how would that work? Are they like... Mm. Did they travel there from the past or is this a time travel scenario or are they more like, you know, like projections from from the afterlife or something? What's going on? I don't think they could live there for long term. You know, I don't think it would work if you think about it real hard. And so I, I think there's a there's like a, a sense of like that that instinct that we have, even when it sometimes is sometimes is silly when you think about it for more than a second to like make that moment last forever but actually mm. the the meaning of it comes from the fact that you know it will end at some point and that's what makes you beckons you into a sense of presentness i think which is mm. so important and that's where you know i think i think we can talk about this stuff with art but i also think you know in line with the theme of this season of cultivating community i think transience and an acceptance of kind of finiteness and temporary mm. experiences is really important to having a good community. Like like community can only happen if you are able to sort of acknowledge that this dinner that you're happening won't happen again and you, you got to be present in that moment with the other people there. And maybe this person won't be at the next dinner that you have and this meal will not be there again. I, I grew up with um, <laughs> my dad is not a foodie. He's he's not a food person. He He always would say, like, if we would think about, like, spending a lot of money on some meal or something, he'd be like, well, it's just going to come out the other end of me at the end of the day. So, like, why would I spend so much time and money on that? <laughs> and I, I kind of understand that feeling, especially because, like, we didn't have a lot of money <laughs> growing up. And so it was like, well, maybe that's a luxury sometimes. But I think that there is such a value even in, like, preparing a meal for someone. And that's become such a meaningful thing to me i'm i'm still not a good cook and i'm not <laughs> I, that's that's going to be a long process for me but i've come to appreciate the the beauty of like putting time into making a meal for people 
even when that meal will just be consumed by them and then it'll mm. be done and the food will be gone and then the dinner will be over, you know, but yet there's a, there's something almost eternal in that moment of experiencing good food together. And I think that's so essential to community is sort of that presentness with that and like giving of yourself, even when it's not something that will go beyond that moment or sort of immortalize you in that way. I don't know. Well, it forces, yeah, again, it forces, force might be the wrong word, but it, it encourages <laughs> presence. Uh, it encourages being fully engaged in this moment, um, which I think we all on some level understand is valuable. We always talk about being present. You want to be present with your children. You want to be in this moment and, and not just check out or be, you know, dissociate or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's important and valuable and healthy to be in the present moment. But then part of why we struggle to accomplish that is that we're not understanding how our obsession with or just the world around us that's built around everything lasting, quote unquote, in some sense, how that compromises. So I guess one aspect that I, I'm thinking of right now, uh, something I've observed, you know, when the pandemic happened, there was a lot of churches that couldn't meet, you know, uh, whether they wanted to or not, they were unable to meet together in person. And so there were a lot of, there was a lot of hand wringing and sort of coming up with some ideas of how to stay engaged with your community. And most churches, their solution was, let's do the exact same thing that we're doing on Sunday morning, (laughs) but we'll live stream it. So you can comment, you can watch from home and you can comment on the live stream. And again, I don't want to get in the weeds and this is a whole nother topic, but there's something really interesting that happened at that point where... Uh, some of it was already built in, and I think it was just the sort of ultimate uh, expression of the reality of where we're at it, it, when it comes to building communities is that it was for, I think, some churches, it wasn't that different than when everybody was in the building. And then a lot of people realized that when they were at home. Mm-hmm. And so when the buildings opened up again, they were like, oh, this isn't actually adding that much value to my life, so why should I go back? Mm-hmm. Because it, they began to realize that they were just you know, when they're when you're in person, you're just in person for a live stream, mm-hmm. um, because for two reasons: one, it's not designed to necessarily foster genuine community amongst the people. It does end up being more just an exchange of there are people on the platform who are giving us something, mm-hmm. and then we're going home. But two, uh, there's an, a, a, an excellent podcast that explores uh, sort of this particular mega church. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill um, by Christianity yeah. Today. And they they explore a specific mega church that was right at the touch point of the internet and the viral video and all of that, and how that fundamentally changed how the church uh, related to its congregants and functioned and was structured. And it was kind of the first or one of the first churches to really tap into this idea that now you see it everywhere where it's clear, like every once in a while I'll go through my Instagram feed and it'll suggest some video of some pastor, I don't know who this guy is, uh, with... 200 followers at most who's got a viral video clip, not a viral video, but it's like a video clip that was, it feels like it was explicitly designed to be posted on social media. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. so there's this, uh, the shift of like, and, and, and we can, you know, can spiritualize that with, with some interesting language of where, you know, it's a greater reach and we're doing more ministry online. And to some extent, I'm not saying that that's not true. And there's some really great work that's being done in those spaces, but I think it, it changed our relationship to what we were doing. Where now it's I'm I'm consciously aware that other people are going to listen, and so I'm actually going to optimize what I'm saying not for the people that I'm talking to in this room, but for mm. the internet. Mm. And and so there was this shift in some of those spaces, and I I'm even mindful of this podcast where you and I we and it's good for us to talk a little bit differently on the podcast than we do outside of the podcast. Um, you know, you don't necessarily want to share every personal detail of our lives for the internet to hear, but th- it does change yeah. our conversation and our how we relate to each other when we're aware that the mics are on, uh, that the cameras are on. And in and of that itself, that's not a bad thing. The internet is wonderful. Make videos, make content. There's, uh, I'm not at all criticizing that, even <laughs> for churches. I'm like... That, that's great and whatever. But so an, a, an example of one way that I get around this is, uh, I think I've mentioned on the show before, but um, I have this bi-weekly live stream called The Nate Show that is 
primarily focused on I'll just bring local friends on and we live stream it to a local audience. Like I've got maybe 10 people who tune in on a regular basis. And it doesn't, I, I don't leave it up online for people to watch after the fact. You have to tune in at the time that it's being live streamed and it won't live after that point. And I've gotten some people going, why would you do that? Like, why, that doesn't make sense to not optimize what you're doing in a media space for the algorithm, for a sort of viral or building a brand or getting more views. And I'm like, honestly, it makes my conversation with these people so much more rich when I, when, uh, and, and some of them are not comfortable on camera anyway. And so they know that it's not going to live on. And so they're a lot more comfortable. And we have just much, a much deeper connection with each other, but also with the people who are tuning in, even the people tuning in online, because we know them, we know who they are. And so you're like, oh, hi, Joe, it's nice to hear from you. I haven't seen you in a while. And so there's a very relational aspect to it. It's been super rewarding. And I can't say that I've not been tempted. Like there's some great content. There's some great things that people have said and great conversations that I'm like, this, a lot of people would really like what we're saying here. The episode I was on. Yeah, and Houston was on. So, you know, you know, of course it was great. Um, But there's just something so interesting to me about knowing that it's not going to be out there, knowing that it doesn't last forever that changes your relationship to that thing and so for me i think it's a a a chance to reclaim some of those human aspects and those real-time fully present aspects but with something like the nate show uh, what i love about it is that it's a way of leveraging the digital space to accomplish some of these deeper human connection type types of things um and is one of the few times where I'm not fully cynical about the internet, <laughs> uh, where I'm like, all right, I think I can embrace this medium because I know we've, mm. Houston, you and I have talked a, a fair amount about, uh, is the internet good or bad? Um, but I think, yeah, there is there is wisdom in saying we can actually leverage our modern age of digital, uh, you know, oversaturation, but we can be really wise and thoughtful about how we cultivate that. Um, And even this podcast and some of the comments and the engagement we've had, I'm like, it's so rich. It's so lovely. It's so not just a bunch of people yelling at each other in, you know, 240 characters or less or whatever it is, you know. Um, So I think about (laughs) this might be a Bible heavy episode. Didn't intend that. But um, I, I often think about what might be one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's definitely one of my favorite verses. It might be my favorite verse is the ending of the book of John uh, that says, mm. you know, and, and Jesus did many other things that are not in this book. And if all of them were written down, the world itself could not contain the amount of books that would be written. And I love that line. It's so poetic and beautiful and paints such an image of like a, a world filled with books. And that's still not enough to contain all the things that Jesus did. But it also always sticks out to me as an example of something that, you know, even though we have these records that sort of immortalize Jesus's life and teachings, there is also so much of it that was totally transient and is lost to history. And I think he was okay with that. You know, there are so many probably miracles that he did, parables that he told, art that he created (laughs) in telling these parables that we don't even know about and that were not recorded Mm. and that were just for those few people in the moment hearing those teachings and you know if if the son of god can operate that way then i think a i can too but also b pastors should too you know Mm. and there's a sense of sort of yeah like not needing to maximize reach maximize impact Mm. because i don't think jesus was doing that (laughs) i think he was interested in in telling stories for the people who were sitting around the table with him and that's hard you know, and part of me is struck by the way that as we're talking about all of these things, I, I don't live all of this out all the time. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I, we can talk about sort of these high-minded ideals of, you know, not trying to live forever and, and trying to be fully present and all this kind of stuff. And I, I don't always do that. I Like I totally, there is a huge part of my brain that wants a legacy and wants to reach as many mm-hmm. people as possible and wants my art to be something that preserves things for infinity. And again, I don't think we're saying that that's always bad. Like, like there is a part of me that even with our Libri documentary, I'm really glad that it is creating like a time capsule of this particular summer that has been captured on film. And even like some of the older residents of Gretham around Libri that we interviewed, who were some of the first students 50 years ago, they're not going to be around forever. And so I'm really glad that we have captured some interviews with them that will 
be able to be experienced by people in the future and kind of hear the things that they had to say. I think that's beautiful. And I, I always uh, value that. But there is this element of sort of presentness and, and transience that, that is lovely and that I don't even fully live out. And and so I think, yeah, that's just something where I always want to be able to acknowledge that with these episodes that we do, that like we are talking about things that we are still coming to terms with and we are mm. still trying to figure out mm. how to live out in our lives. I think you're doing it in a beautiful way with stuff like The Nate Show. Like that's something that I'm not even bold enough to do, like to spend a significant portion of my week you know, creating a show every Tuesday night that is only experienced by the people who tune in in that moment and then delete it afterward. I don't have the energy or the wherewithal or the like sense of humility and sort of sort of giving up, you know, to do that, like giving up sort of my pride or giving up the control. Um, but I think it's beautiful. Which- and to be to be clear, I don't actually technically delete them. I do keep the <laughs> files for posterity, and for will you. sometimes yeah. share them with friends who express interest. You know, weren't able to see it, and so I'm not a monster. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think again, this is just one of those things that I stumbled onto that I think has been really healthy for me. And for whatever reason, there is just some part of my brain and my artistic process that actually really likes putting a lot of effort into something that doesn't last. Hmm. Um, you know, like that art installation I was telling you about earlier with the pine trees and the projections. I'm like, it took, it takes me about two weeks to set up and it's for an, an art festival that we have in town here. And so there's two days that you get to experience it and then I take it down. And it's, uh, there's definitely some practical considerations that I don't like to repeat of like, I can't be donating, like I'm not making money off of this. And so you have to do it for the love of it. Um, and a lot, you know, a lot of it is I love the tech and I love exploring what can I do and how can I do it. But there's just something strangely satisfying about, uh, for me at least, about putting something together that it's like, yeah, you, you actually had to be there. And for me, I don't want it ever to be like a gatekeeping, like, oh, you had to be there and it's a special whatever. But again, I think there's something really beautiful and special. I think about it with like even, you know, when my kids make me something or there's this like personalness to it of... I put all this time and effort into making you something, uh, making something that I know you as my friend or as my child or parent or whatever, I know that you would like. And so it doesn't matter how long it took me. It's an expression of love. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I think meals is, we could talk for a whole podcast about (laughs) sort of the the installation art of food, you know, (laughs) Um, that that's a great and, and in many ways lost art of presence and cultivation of, of some of these these values. I don't know if you have more thoughts or if there's anything else we need to cover in this already expansive ep- episode, but... Yeah, this is... I'm going to have to trim this down a bit because this has been our <laughs> longest episode so far, but I think it's Yay. such a worthy topic to talk about. Yeah, thank you guys so much for being here. I am just so excited every week to be able to record a new episode and, and to be able to ask the discussion questions that we ask on Substack and on my Twitter and stuff like that. If you'd like to engage with the show, which we love, you can send in an audio message to us, which we will then play on the show if we if we like it. <laughs> I, we've we've thus far we've only received a couple, so like you know if and you send in great, one, so. there's there's not much competition. So mm-hmm. you can go to speakpipe.com/artwithinpod and you can just record a quick audio, send it to us without even making an account or anything. There's also the Substack where you can engage with the discussion threads. That's artwithin.substack.com. And then our individual social media where we often put out the discussion questions as well. Thanks for being here, guys. We are glad to have you here and glad to have you part of this conversation. Looking forward to next week. Yeah. And uh, if you do have any thoughts, comments, questions regarding what we've talked about today, please do reach out to us. And again, we love to engage with all of that and to fill out our own understanding of some of these things. So uh, find us on any of those links and websites and social medias and all let us things. know what you're thinking. Yeah. So thanks for uh, tuning in with us and we'll see you. We'll hear you next week. (laughs) See ya.